You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Again, if I, uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I should have introduced myself earlier. But my name is Jake, and I'm so glad that you're joining us this morning. Uh, a fun morning. And uh, again, as Krista said, way to go in getting here, uh, you know, making the way through the marathon traffic and the cold weather and all that kind of stuff to be here to worship God. Way to go. Way to go. I mean, think about you could be at brunch right now, you know, and uh, you know, not to put that thought in your head, but like... Austin has a lot of good brunch spots, and you, you could be there, but here you are, worshiping God. I think that's pretty awesome because, you know, Austin is really known all over the, the world for our food. You know that, right? Like, did you know that in October, Austin was named the uh, number nine best foodie city in the U.S.? Number nine, we're in the top 10. Yeah, way to go, Austin. And, uh, and so the, the, the quality of our food is awesome here, and the quantity of our food is pretty impressive as well. According to Eater.com, the incredible you know, database that they have, uh, Austin has about 6,000 restaurants and about 1,000 food trucks. Do you know that? You know what that means? That means if you were to commit to eat at one new place every single day, it would take you 19 years to eat through every place in Austin. That means you could get pregnant, have a baby, and send them to college before you were done eating through our city. Austinites love to eat. And yet, here I am for the second week in a row talking about fasting, right? And encouraging us to abstain from food for a spiritual purpose. And, uh, you know, that might just be kind of stupid of me because it cuts across, you know, our uh, culture, our love for food here in Austin, and it cuts against our own desires, right? Like I think about my desire to be uh, comfortable and to do what I want to do when I want to do it, and just to be able to eat what I want to eat, you know, when I want to eat it, <laughs> you know, am I alone in that? Like, we have this desire within us to, to just to be, you do whatever kind of will make us happy in the moment. The psychologists, they have a name for this. It's called the pleasure principle. Pleasure principle, have you ever heard that before? I think it was coined by Freud. But the pleasure principle, basically, it, it was the mark for, for many, many years. It was the primary mark of the, and this is going to sting perhaps a little bit, uh, the mark of the immature. And the immature, like, you know, think about toddlers, kids, even some middle schoolers. Uh, no offense uh, to my daughter if she's still in here. But, um, you know, the immature where they, you know, don't have the, you know, the, the, the self-discipline or perhaps even the mental capacity to uh, forego what seems pleasurable in the moment for something better in the long run, you know, that was a primary mark of the immature. Now, what's interesting is that uh, many psychologists remark today, and I think we can attest to this, that what used to be the mark of the immature has now become quite the norm for our entire society. We want to do what we want to do when we want to do it, 
We want to do whatever is going to make us feel happy in the moment. The, you know, some evidence of this is just the incredible growing amount of consumer debt in our country and uh, even obesity problems and hookup culture. Like all of these things, and there's many more that, that point to our, our, our love of doing whatever we want to do when we want to do it or being driven by the pleasure principle. How, but that's a problem. And it's a problem because we all know that many of the things that are pleasurable in the short term reap damage in the long term. And on the flip side, many of the things that are quite honestly not fun or comfortable or easy in the short term yield great dividends in the years and and decades to come, right? I mean, this applies to everything from physical health to emotional health to financial health to relational health and spiritual health. For as long as we run our lives on the pleasure principle, We will never mature into men or women who are marked by love and who have the capacity to enjoy life as God intended. So, it comes as no surprise that Jesus' invitation to be his disciple doesn't sound like the pleasure principle at all. Think about in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, of Jesus' famous invitation. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. See, that invitation doesn't have the same appeal as do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. But Jesus knows it's only by following his example of a cross-shaped life of self-denial that we can be formed in the people who are pervaded by his love and peace, and joy. See, uh, if we want to become mature, and if we want to become like Jesus, people of love, then we have to be able to counteract this drive within us all that's, you know, really marked by the, given into the pleasure principle. But how do we do that? How do we counteract this desire within us? And how do we do that in a city like Austin? That's literally set up to entice that desire within us, to market to it and to feed it, where we're surrounded by things calling out to us to do whatever feels good in the moment. Look at this, buy this, do this, eat this, you know? Like you think that that food truck just outside of your office is just a food truck. No, it's Satan, Not really, I'm sure, not really. But now the question really is, how do we counteract all of that? Well, allow me to recommend fasting. Fasting, a practice from the way of Jesus. See, last week I I, uh, shared that the focus of this teaching series that goes along with our fasting practice is, is uh, the focus is going to be to dive into four reasons for why to fast. And as I shared last week, the four reasons are these. First is to offer ourselves to Jesus. That's what we covered last week. And then to grow in holiness, to amplify your, our prayers, and to stand with the poor. And today, we're going to drill down on that second one, that uh, fasting in order to grow 
and holiness. Now, holiness is a little bit of a loaded word. It's got, it's a, there's a lot to it. But, uh, you know, just to kind of give you a shorthand way of understanding it, you could say that holiness has to do with wholeness. See, it describes a life that's marked by maturity instead of immaturity, or completeness instead of brokenness, or godliness instead of worldliness, and love instead of selfishness. That holiness in a person looks like Jesus. So another way to understand holiness is Christ-likeness. Now, in order to help us understand why fasting helps us grow in holiness, I want to uh, return to our big question from last week, right? That big question being, how does abstaining from food have any impact on our spiritual lives? Or specifically today, how does fasting help us grow in holiness? And so to speak to that, what I want to do is I want to just try to lay out for you a biblical theology of fasting. So are you like so intrigued by that? I've always wanted to know biblical theology of fasting. I'm so glad I'm here. No, but I think you'll find this helpful. If you can stick with me, we're going to cover a lot of ground, but it should be a little fun. All right. So in order to begin understanding a biblical theology of fasting, we have to begin at the beginning. And so we're going to look at Genesis chapter two. You can go there in your Bible or follow along with the words on the screen. But in Genesis chapter 2, verse, starting in verse 4, here, here's what it says. It says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And then verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the neshama in the Hebrew. Neshama is a word that can be translated as uh, breath or as spirit. You read through the Old Testament, you see this word translated either way throughout the Old Testament. So the Lord breathed into his nostrils, the man's nostrils, the neshama, the, the breath or spirit of life. And the man became a living being. A living being. That word for being there is, is, uh, is nephish. Nephish, which we looked at last week, if you remember the video. It's the word for soul. It's a word that speaks to both body and spirit. See, what we learn here right from the very beginning is that uh, human, being a human involves both the ground and the breath of God. The physical and the spiritual, the body and the spirit. It isn't until the body and spirit come together that the man becomes a living nephesh, a living soul, living being. See, that's why, as I said last week, and when I quoted Scott McKnight, uh, to be human is to be an embodied spirit, an embodied spirit. Which I bring that up because in our modern day thinking, we really view the body as just being the container for the real you. The, the, the real you is not, but the truth is, the real you is not contained in the body. Your body is an essential part of the real you. <laughs> that put another way, the real you is an integrated whole 
of both body and spirit. To quote the uh, author Nancy Piercy, she says, Scripture treats body and soul as two sides of the same coin. The inner life of the soul is expressed through the outer life of the body. Now, this is why in Scripture, we see that what happens in our spirit impacts our bodies. For example, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 21 and 22 says, Keep them, referring to these words of wisdom, keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole what? Body. See, according to this verse and many others in Scripture, our spirit affects our body. And in Scripture, we see that it works the other way around as well, that our bodies affect our spirit. Now, the ultimate tragic example of this is found in Genesis chapter 3. There we read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, you know, we may eat from fruit from the trees in the garden, but yeah, God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. Notice that was a full-on lie. We have a lot of evidence of that. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Put another way, you can't trust God. You'll be much better off if you determine what's good and evil instead of letting him determine what's good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now, I've read this story so many times. If you grew up in church, you have too. Uh, And But it wasn't until just a few years ago when I heard a pastor, John Mark Comer, teaching on this passage that it kind of dawned on me the the significance that food plays in this story. You ever thought about that? Right? Like, yeah, specifically the significance of the, the, the inability not to eat something that was in front of you. Anyone else struggle with that? I know I know I do. Now, the temptation here was not really about the fruit, right? We can see that. The temptation was about redefining good and evil, to trust your own instinct and, and, and a voice in your ear instead of trusting God and his vision for human flourishing. That was and always has been the big temptation. But what was the means of that temptation? It was the fruit, right? And ultimately, in this story, it's the physical act of eating the fruit that leads to the fall, which just highlights that what we do with our body impacts our spirit. And in this case, in a very negative way, right? But in contrast, in the life of Jesus, we see how what we do with our body can impact our spirit in a very 
positive way. And so to show you that, let's go to Matthew chapter 4. All right. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 says this. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Does that sound familiar? Right? I think we just read a story about that. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's an understatement. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And so, so, okay, pause here. Do you notice, like, here we have again, a temptation that has to do with what? With food, right? But again, it's not really about food. It's about something else, but the means of temptation is food again. And so Jesus answers, it is written, and he quotes from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, there's a lot that's going on here that I don't have time to get into, but if you're feeling deja vu when you read this Matthew 4 passage, that's good. That's a sign that you're reading the Bible well, because that's what the author Matthew had in mind. And what Jesus is doing here is that he is kind of reenacting or replaying the garden story all over again. Here's Jesus face to face with the tempter, and here's the temptation. It's kind of about food, but it's not really about food. It's about a lot more than that, but it boils down to something with food. But unlike Adam and Eve, who failed when tempted, Jesus succeeded. He doesn't give in to the devil's temptation. Instead, Jesus overcomes him. Now, how did he do that? For a very long time, I thought the devil came to tempt Jesus after 40 days of fasting because that would have been when Jesus would have been in his weakest state, right? I don't know about y'all who fasted this last week, but I was feeling pretty weak around dinner time. I would think that you'd definitely be feeling weak after 40 days of fasting, right? But that's not why uh, the devil came at this time. Actually, Jesus knew the devil was coming. So we were told right at the beginning here that the, the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This was not a surprise attack. Jesus knew this was coming. And so what did Jesus do to prepare? He fasted. He fasted for 40 days to get ready. See, he was at the end of 40 days absolutely physically hungry. But he was also spiritually prepared. See, after fasting, Jesus wasn't weak. He was strong. And after practicing the discipline of being in control of his physical desires, while at the same time communing with the Spirit, he was ready to take on the tempter toe-to-toe and come out on the other side as the victor. You could put it this way. Fasting was Jesus' way of engaging his body as his ally in the fight with the enemy. See, he understood what we often miss, that what you do with your body impacts your spirit because to be human is to be an embodied spirit where your spirit affects your body and your body affects your spirit for you are an integrated 
whole. It's what it means to be a human being. And so, fasting helps us grow in holiness, you could say, because it engages all that we are in the fight against the enemy. But not just our fight against the enemy. It also engages all we are in, the, in our fight against what St. Augustine called our disordered desires, or what the Apostle Paul called our flesh. For example, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul writes, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, like they are fighting against each other, so that you are not to do Whatever you want, which is completely the opposite of the pleasure principle, right? Do whatever you want, whenever you want it. No, Paul says, no, no, no. We have these desires, what he calls the flesh in us, that's wanting us, causing us to want things that are not good. We need the Spirit to fight that because we aren't to always do what we want. Paul calls that desire within us the flesh. And the flesh is a tricky term because uh, it, it, it's the Greek word sarks. And in some cases, when this word shows up in the New Testament, it's literally talking about flesh and bone. But in other cases, this word doesn't mean flesh and bone. I and mean, it's like we have lots of English words, right, that mean multiple things. Well, sarks in the Greek is one of those. And, and uh, in this case, when Paul is using this word, Sarks, what he is referencing is not our flesh and bone, but our disordered and sinful desires. Or to quote Eugene Peterson, flesh is Paul's way of referring to the corruption that sin has introduced into our very appetites and instincts. Basically, the flesh is Paul's way of referring to the way that sin has infected all that we are, both body and spirit resulting in our desires for food and drink and sex and sleep and security and comfort, none of which are bad per se. But in our flesh, they have become disordered, distorted and disordered and have bent away from good as defined by God. So just to be clear, hopefully you're tracking with me. When Paul speaks to the flesh, he's not saying our fight is against the body. See, the body is good. It's a good gift. And it's an essential part of who we are. But instead, our fight is against these disordered and sinful appetites and instincts inside us all. And fasting, friends, helps us fight the flesh. This is why apprentices of Jesus throughout the last 2,000 years, attest to the power of fasting as a way to grow in holiness. Just to quote a couple, St. Augustine, a hippo, back in the 5th century, was asked, why fast? And his answer was, because it is something, because it is sometimes necessary to check the delight of the flesh in respect to licit pleasures in order to keep it from yielding to illicit joys. And then 
a century later, Thomas Akempis, the, the, the brilliant intellectual of the 15th century, said this on fasting. He said, restrain from gluttony, and thou shalt the more easily restrain all of the inclinations of the flesh. See, when you read the great ones of church history, you quickly realize they believed that without fasting, it was almost impossible to reach a high level of holiness. And you also realize that they practiced fasting with great regularity. See, they understood that fasting is a powerful way to fight the flesh. It's a powerful way to fight the flesh because when you fast, it helps us do four things, okay? First thing is, Fasting helps wean us off the pleasure principle. Dallas Willard, writing on fasting, put it this way. Fasting is one of the most important ways of practicing uh, the self-denial required of everyone who would follow Christ. The fasting is a way to train ourselves to honor God with our bodies as we practice saying no to fleshly desires practice saying no to having what we want when we want it. It trains us to say no to that so that we can instead offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. It helps wean us off of the pleasure principle. The second thing that fasting does is it helps reveal what's in our hearts. Richard Foster in his classic book, Celebration of Disciplines, writes, more than any other single discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. And this is a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who longs to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. See, fasting teaches us so much about ourselves, about our unhealthy relationship to food, about how weak we are, or how much we need pleasure in order to be happy and to be kind. (laughs) It's very humiliating. Anyone experience that this week? Get a little grouchy at the end of the day when you were fasting. Get a little impatient. Harder to be kind. Uh, If so, you're you're not alone. (laughs) I'm right there with you. As you fast, you see these things go from the the depth of your heart to, to the surface. They were always there. They were just kind of pushed down by continually kind of numbing it with with good food. But when you take that away, you see this stuff. And that's helpful to see. Because when you see it, you have the opportunity to confess it. To take it to God so that he can then transform us. Okay, third thing fasting does. Fasting helps us reorder our desires. See, because when we fast, we are making an intentional decision to prioritize the worship of God over our desire for food, which in turn helps train us to do that in other areas as well. Now, personally, I just can testify the fact that the more I fast, the more my desires do begin to change. I find myself wanting to sin less and wanting to be holy, and to draw close to God more and more. And finally, fasting also helps us walk by the Spirit 
drawing on his power to overcome sin. And friends, this is the most important part. See, fasting in and of itself is a discipline. And like any good practice, it's a way to increase our willpower muscle, which is great, but willpower only works on very small changes. Like willpower versus a plate of cookies is one thing, but willpower versus a porn addiction or drug and alcohol addiction or outbursts of anger rooted in childhood trauma, a father wound or a mother wound, and willpower doesn't stand a chance. See, Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 13 writes, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Which is to say, you can't use the flesh to defeat the flesh. Willpower is not enough. We need the power of the Spirit. We need to find a way to draw on the same power that Jesus did, the power of the Spirit, in order to live out His teachings and fight the enemy and the flesh. But how do we do that? Well, it's really not all that complicated. See, Paul in that same chapter, Romans chapter 8, just earlier, says this. In verses 5 and 6, he says, Those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. It's as simple as that. The key to keep your mind on God and the things The key is to keep your mind on God and the things of God, the things that the Spirit desires. That's the key. How do we walk by the Spirit? How do we draw on the Spirit's power? Keep your mind set on Him. And friends, fasting is one of the most practical and powerful ways to help keep our minds on God. Where each hunger pain has, is an opportunity to direct and redirect our thoughts to God, right? So our minds are directed and redirected throughout the day towards Him, resulting in us walking by or living by the Spirit, or to use Jesus' language, abiding in Him. See, that's, that's where the magic happens. <laughs> For as we abide in Him, as we walk by the Spirit, God slowly transforms us to be more and more like Jesus. Resulting in us growing in holiness. As the pastor and author Dave Clayton says, fasting is not ultimately about what we let go of, but who we let take hold of us. So to summarize all that, You could say that fasting is a way to turn your body into an ally in your fight against the flesh. Where through fasting, you, in a a sense, starve the flesh and feed the spirit. But friends, that's why fasting is so hard. (laughs) 
See, fasting is hard, especially at first. It really does, it really does get easier. And the reason why it gets easier is because the more you do it, the more your flesh is weakened through self-denial and your spirit is strengthened as we set our minds on God and live by the spirit. But especially at first, fasting is so hard because you're essentially picking a fight with the flesh. But friends, the more you do that, the more free you become. See, fasting is a pathway to freedom from being enslaved by the sinful and disordered desires of our flesh. That fasting helps you walk in the freedom of to become freedom, to become the mature man or the woman that has the capacity to live and love and thrive as God intended. This is, this is why, uh, you know, as a, as a pastor and, and, and as a friend, whenever uh, you know, I talk to someone who, who, you know, shares that they're trapped in ongoing sin, like especially uh, uh, some kind of sexual sin, I pretty much always recommend that they start fasting. Now, I do that in addition to recommending that they do things like, you know, perhaps get into Christian therapy and be in community and, and, and practice confession. But fasting is an incredibly important aspect that I point them to to help them fight these kinds of deep <laughs> and, and enslaving kinds of sin. See, because fasting is one of the most powerful weapons we have to fight sin and set our hearts free. For as we fast, we open our mind and our body to God so that the Spirit of God can do what we cannot do in and of ourselves. Break the chains of sin. See, when you can't overcome a sin, whether it be pornography or gossip or yelling at your kids, because it's outside of the range of your willpower, Here's what you can do. Fast. Fast. And offer your body to God and let his spirit break the hold of sin over you and set you free. So, as a way to grow in holiness, I want to invite you to join us in this fasting practice. And the invitation this week is similar to the invitation last week. Pick one day this week to fast through breakfast and lunch, and then break your fast at sundown with dinner. But this week, as you fast, focus on and direct your prayers towards growing in holiness. In your fasting practice guide, which if you don't have, there's some extras out in the lobby. Really encourage you to pick that up. And for those who do have them, I encourage you to pick it up as well and use this. There's good stuff in there. And in there, you'll see some more uh, added uh, recommendations in regards to this fasting practice. I would really encourage you to, to look at that. But at, in the end, what day you fast and, and kind of how you do this is up to you. Yeah, as I, I said last week, it, it, it's it really is. It's up to you. And the reason why it's up to you is because you don't have to fast. Even after everything I just said, I want to be clear about that. Because uh, Jesus never commanded for his followers to fast. There's no New Testament verse that commands us to fast. 
Jesus fasted, his disciples fasted. Jesus' his invitation to all of us is to come follow me, like come do what I'm doing, which would include the invitation to come and fast because that's what Jesus did, but that's an invitation. It's not a command, okay? So if you think this is ridiculous, you're off the hook, right? You don't have to do this to get God to love you and accept you. You don't have to do this to get us to love you or accept you, okay? This is purely invitational. What that also means is that if this is unhealthy for you to do for whatever reason, whether it's, it's because of a struggle with an unhealthy relationship to food or poor health or you're pregnant and this would not be wise for you to do, that's fine. You have ultimate freedom to not do it, all right? Having said that, if you're able to, I couldn't more highly recommend you practice, take up this practice of fasting. That you join us in fasting at least one day this week because fasting, as I just spent the last 30 or so minutes saying, helps us grow in holiness. It's a pathway to freedom and to maturity and to Christ-likeness. So, Will you fast this week? You don't have to answer out loud, but God knows what you thought. <laughs> um, okay, just to reiterate one more time, this is purely invitational. And the reason why ultimately this is invitational is because of what we remember when we partake in communion. And uh, servers, if you're able, why don't you go uh, get the communion elements? We'll begin passing those out now. And communion, as we get ready to, to take the, the bread and the cup, is our opportunity just to, to, to be encouraged and reminded and perhaps even moved to worship over the fact that what Jesus did for us is what makes us right with God, not what we do for him. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven.